wonder-working stars in the precious... Incredible as they seem, are not the results of mass hysteria. <laughs> You may wish to adjust the dial. You are currently tuned into the wrong station. Hunting is not as simple as it once was. At least it seems that way to me. Though perhaps things simply prove less simple as I grow older. Perhaps hunting is best left to the young. When I began this life, I didn't muse on each hunt for as long as I do now. The morality, the grayness, or the consequences of my actions. Speed was the measure of my success, not how clean the job was, whether I was efficient or cruel. It was all a race, to bathe in the blood of beasts and in the people's gratitude. But now I do muse on my hunts, which is why I have begun to write this journal, to help me sort my thoughts, turn them over, have them at the ready when I should need them. I hope to live a long life still, and I expect I shall read over these words on many a sleepless night. This latest business at Hagenbach has certainly given me that. Sleepless nights, I mean. Otherwise it must be the summer heat. There is a common misconception that the creatures of the night appear more frequently in the summer. The truth is that it's only the attacks that become more frequent. The beasts are always out there, beyond the trees, searing heat or stinging cold. It's simply the case that a cold night is better at encouraging one to stay inside and bolt the door shut. I cannot tell how many times I have been summoned because a farmer overstaying his welcome in the fields was slaughtered like one of his animals, because lovers in the midst of a midnight dalliance were sucked dry of their blood, because a child permitted to stay out and play was snatched up and carried into the night sky on leathery, hellish wings. When I arrived at Hagenbach, I found that the story had smatterings of all three. A farmer's daughter, nearly still a child, offered to go out into the night and fetch water. A ruse, of course, and her disappearance was noted when she failed to arrive for an evening rendezvous by the mill with her equally young suitor. And though the young man likely encouraged her to her doom, I applauded his honesty in coming forth about these plans. It allowed me to trace her most likely path that night, to look for anything that might help me identify and track her abductor. What I noted first was the lack of blood or bodily remains. The girl had not been immediately gored, slashed, or ripped open. This was not necessarily an encouraging sign. Many creatures consume their prey whole, or slowly, or paralyze them for later consuming. 
But still, it was a clue, and so I searched for more such and found them in short order. Pinion prints, and a measure of their depth to estimate the weight of the beast. A black, sicky sludge left on the blades of tall grass. The bare traces of a distinctly bitter, acrid odor. A picture was coming together at last. An interesting picture. One I was not glad to see, but was glad to be seeing. The young hunter, however rash, can survive through speed and endurance. The old hunter, and there are not many of us, lives and dies on their knowledge and their ability to prepare. I struck out that evening, fairly certain of what I would find. I was looking for a cool, dark, quiet place. The creature would not be out stalking two nights in a row. It had captured prey the night before and would now be attempting to digest in peace. It wasn't very long walking through those woods before I heard the soft whimper, a ways beyond the tree line coming from the ruined shell of a forest shrine dedicated to Estrilla, a remnant from the days of the Zirmar dynasty. The darkness and seclusion of this old wayfarer's temple was exactly what I sought, and the weak cry I heard confirmed that the creature was there and was indeed what I had guessed it to be. A bile fiend. How shall I describe it in words? A beast with pitch-black skin, six pinioned legs, and an upper torso with man-like arms ending in razored claws. This one was about nine feet tall and twelve long, a smaller one. And, of course, the defining feature of the bile fiend, its mouth, if you could call it that. The bile fiend has no face, hardly even a head, no eyes, ears, or nose. We still debate how exactly they sense their surroundings. No. In place of such features, this beast has a flat surface on its front side extending from the head to midway down the torso. This surface is highly corrosive, and anything unfortunate enough to be preyed upon by the bile fiend finds itself seized by sharp talons and then pressed up against the surface. There it becomes trapped, slowly melting into a dark pitch that the creature seems to absorb as sustenance. That's the state the girl was in when I found them, weakly whimpering, her arms and legs already fused into the caustic surface. The fiend took note of me before she did, shuffling to face me as I stepped into the rubble of the ruined shrine. It was then that the girl saw me. Her face came alive with hope. She tried to mouth words that she was too weak to say. Praise to the gods. A call for help. I do not know now. For that is when I struck. I bounded forward, knowing that I had a second's advantage as the fiend would be sluggish and unbalanced while glutting itself. In this decisive moment... I thrust my partisan through the girl and through the creature's center of mass. My choice of weapon proved wise, as gall and boiling black blood sprayed from the fiend, melting both the spear's haft and the protective gloves I had donned. 
Luckily, it seems as though I'd pierced the girl's heart and killed her instantly, sparing her the torment of being boiled and melted down to bone whilst alive. Could I have saved her? It's possible. I could have fought the bile fiend in a battle of attrition, hacking limbs and killing by less direct means. Then, slowly sawn the girl from her prison. But that would have been risky. One misstep, one errant spray of blood would be death. And it's hardly a life for a young woman to live, being half-melted away. So I did what was easy and safe, and the creature is slain all the same. The lie to her parents came naturally. The girl was dead when I found her. It is a story I've told many times. But that is not to say that I enjoy telling it. That I don't dwell on it. I think that's enough writing for now. Begor struck me as an arrogant youth when I met her, the kind likely to get herself killed in our line of work, sooner rather than later. It's not often that we hunters work together, even when the threat is great enough to warrant it, or the foes numerous enough. Few are willing to split the rewards. But... I have not lived this long just to let myself be ambushed from four sides by ghouls while crawling through a dusty crypt. Not even the greatest hunter alive has eyes in the back of his head. So I decided it would be best to have a partner for this job. A noble lady of a reputable Hannestown family had gone missing in one of the city's labyrinthian co-owned mausoleums. Apparently the city's underworkings had been lousy with ghouls for years a problem being ignored by civil authorities. Only now, with a high-born woman missing and her personal guards found slain, had the Lord Mayor decided to take action. Or, rather, hire someone else to do the dirty work. It was easy enough to find another hunter. Hannestown is a large city. While threats to the populace are fewer than out in the country, there are still plenty of chest-thumping hotbloods sitting in taverns and waiting for their first shot at glory to come to them. As I said, Begor was arrogant, smug, took to calling me Greybeard in conversation, which I can't say I liked. Said she would help me clear the crypts if my back and knees were aching. We set out the next morning, after I found the ale-stinking girl still sleeping and kicked her out of her bed. Best to start at dawn. Get a head start as the ghouls retreat to their nests for sleep. This was to be a two-part endeavor. Find the noblewoman, or, more likely, find her remains or some significant token to allow the family some closure. Then destroy their lair, split them into smaller packs that the city guard could handle, and slay as many as possible in the process. For this task, I prepared dowsing charms, a tough jerkin for some protection against the venomous bites, fiery antiseptics should it fail, nets to help separate the creatures and fight them piecemeal, spotting mirrors for the crypt's many corners, and my sharpest silver blade. Begor brought her battle axe. And a buckler. 
We talked some small bit as we descended into the tombs. More than I would have liked, but it was early enough that I supposed it was fine. Begor told me about her home, her family, her decision to journey out into the world and hunt monsters. And then she asked me about my life, or my career at least. Still kept to calling me Greybeard, but with less of a sharpness than the night before. While she was still too sure of herself for one so unblooded, I started regarding Begor with less disdain as those early hours passed. I noted her youthful enthusiasm, her idyllic notions that strong folk with good steel could banish evil from the world. And, as we started to encounter straggling ghouls on the catacomb outskirts, she demonstrated that her confidence was not without merit. Tough, stringy muscle and bone looked like wet pulp as that axe passed through them, and more than once she cleaved right through one ghoul only to find deadly purchase on another with the same stroke. I want to say that she reminded me of myself when I was young, but that may not be true. She may have been better than I was. The evening hours were approaching, and we had finally made our way to the center of the mausoleum complex. No sign of the woman yet, or of the ghoul's lair. I suspected we would soon find both. As we neared that central chamber, I noticed the glow of fire coming from around the last turn. Not the focused light of torch flame, which would be strange enough this near to the lair, but that of a roaring bonfire. And as we settled upon the turn's corner, appeared around it with my mirrors to see just what it was. It seemed the city's problems went far beyond a mere collection of ghouls. They had a corpse priest. I've also heard them called charnel witches in the north. A half-living thing that had shunned its relations with mortal men, and kept company only with things dead or half-dead like itself. I had heard stories of these creatures making packs with clans of carrion ghouls when it suited both, but this was the first time I was witness to that unholy union. And even though this was a surprise to me, what was more surprising still was that through my mirror I could also see the noblewoman. Alive. She was bound down to a slab stone that had been moved to the center of the chamber and gagged. I could see her struggling as the corpse priest stood above her in filthy robes, and a pyre fueled by the spoiled remains roared behind them. He waved a long, serpentine, gore-crusted dagger, and now that I focused on it, I could just hear the murmuring sound of ritualistic chanting. But I could not see the ghouls. Not all of them. We would wait, I told Begor. Wait for the ritual to end, for the ghoul packs to splinter off for their nightly hunt so we could pick them off, destroy the lair and the priest while they were defenseless. Begor considered this for a moment, and then charged around the corner and down the corridor. It took me a moment to recover from my shock before I charged after her. She was already entering the central chamber as I did. I expected her 
to die in those next few moments, to be swarmed, dragged down, and torn to pieces. But she did not. With a roar, she slammed into the corpse priest first, her speed and power sending the thin, sickly thing flying into the flames. Not losing a step, Begor turned round with a heavy swing and beheaded two ghouls that had stepped out from the shadowed corners of the room. With her back against the woman in the fire, she began to fend off an attack from three sides. And I do not know when, but my own feet had begun to move. Before I knew it, I was in that room as well, taking those creatures by surprise in a pincer strike. Soon, back to back with Begor, facing foes who stood no chance against our combined might, as that unholy priest met his screaming end ablaze. It was glorious. The ghouls were slain. The woman saved. Both of us hailed as heroes of Hannestown. I have not felt such pride in many years. I will savor the feeling and try to take a lesson from it. Perhaps there is still room for heroism in this hunter's life. Caution is best. I learned that early, but my friend Emil and I were fledgling boys and thought we could vanquish a crag lion. No plan, no respect for the danger. It's a miracle that I managed to get his body back to his mother, to bury. So I know that caution is best. I knew that. We were traveling along the Alden Ridge. Had been for some three days. There had been talk of a creature harassing small farming settlements outside of Eisenkirk. Nobody had been killed, thankfully, but the creature had stolen enough livestock that it was deemed a nuisance worthy of our services. From asking around, it sounded like it was a vire. And from further investigation, it sounded like it was a blue-winged vire. You need to be sure of these things. So there we were inching our way along the mountain pass during the day, keeping watches at night to try and spot it flying to and from its nest. Begor was not pleased with this arrangement, which was no surprise to me now having known her for several months. The more meticulous aspects of this trade, tracking, gathering information, maintenance of tools, were not her favorites. But I reminded her, as I had many times up to that point, that we were not soldiers, flying the banner, meeting evil on the open field. We were hunters. We don't fight monsters. We hunt them. After Hannestown, I had taken Begor on as a full-time apprentice. Down in the crypts, I had seen her fire and resolve, her brute power and warrior instinct, and from then on I admitted my goal to temper that fire and power with wisdom and experience though my results up to that point had been mixed. Mm. Perhaps I was arrogant. Maybe it's impossible to try and mold a great hunter, and that they must simply occur from the correct circumstances. The problem then was that after Hannestown there was no circumstance which presented an appropriate threat, no crag lion to instill the values I was trying to teach. It's difficult to state the importance of caution when you're killing nothing but 
marsh treks and lesser oofs. Of course, the opposite is no better. There is no useful lesson to be learned in facing a demon of the north, only the one learned and understood in your final moments, that death was always sure. <laughs> These words come easy now as I write them, but I did not have them before. And as I sat in the darkness of night trying to find them, dreading that I still would not have them for beg or come the morning, I all at once felt a great weight lift off my chest. For in the distant horizon, barely at first, and then more distinctly, I spotted the creature flying southeast toward the Eisenkirk farmlands. I had seen its course, which meant we could find its nest when it made the return trip which meant Begor's grumblings and my failed lessons could wait another day. I thought. I hoped. Hours later, shortly before dawn, we were upon the Vyre's nest. With good pace, we'd made it to the approximate area, near enough that when it returned, with the prize hog clutched in its claws, estimating its precise location was trivial. It had made its home high, high up along the ridge, in the middle of a sharp outcropping which we looked down on from the tall rocks encircling it. As we crawled up the last few steps, the vire was still gorging itself on the hog. Its back was turned, but I could hear it taking careless, messy bites. I knew its grinding teeth and gaping mouth were scooping up flesh, organ, and bone without discretion. A blue-winged vire. Not a problem for a seasoned hunter but you don't want to suffer its bite. Let it finish eating, I said. It'll go to sleep when the sun rises and we'll climb down for a clean kill. Begor wouldn't have it. The creature is there. We are here. Let's kill it now and be done. But this wasn't like the crypts. There was nobody in danger. No sacrifice or cost for waiting. No, this was just... impatience and pride. But Begor did not wait. Why should she have? As far as she knew, she was invincible. And so she slid down into the outcropping before I could calm her down, battle-axe drawn. And as the vire took note of her presence and turned around, my breath stopped and my heart crashed. For the creature shrieked and spread its arms wide, revealing that the membranous skin of its wings was not blue. It was a sickly yellow-green. Even if I could have screamed a warning, I wouldn't have. It was already too late for Begor, and I couldn't afford to give up my position. Before she could even step within range to strike, the vire unhinged its jaw, at a gout of flame, that same shade of green erupted from its belly. She was dead before her charred bones hit the ground. I hid for several hours as the vire patrolled its territory for other intruders, and, very luckily, it did not find me. After that, it went to sleep and I climbed down for the kill. The clean kill. I should have said something more. Because we didn't know what it really was. 
But even if it had been blue, I was still correct. Caution is best. Seven children had gone missing by the time I was summoned to the village. No one had seen anything, heard anything, or found anything. There were no tracks, no shed hair, skin, or feathers, no sticky black tar residue, just boot prints in the mud. They disappeared like ghosts. My only lead had come from the bailiff upon my arrival, something about wild animals out in the woods. Normally I wouldn't humor such mundane speculation, but the man insisted, and I had no other course. After a fruitless night spent searching through the underbrush, cracking dowsing charms and referencing my tomes to see if there was any obscure beast I could be forgetting, I emerged from the woods at dawn to find that an eighth child had been taken. Again, my parents had no clue as to what had happened, and they and all the other mothers and fathers were understandably furious with me. Not outwardly, but with a cold contempt. No, this was the first time I had ever been at such a loss, in a situation where my years of experience amounted to nothing. <clears throat> but I was still prepared for even such a case as this. There are other means than the purely natural to carry out one's duties. Ways to turn the dark against itself, in a manner of speaking. Some revel in these methods. I had always eschewed them, but I did carry one particular bauble to be used only in the utmost extreme of circumstances. And with eight children gone without a trace, there no guarantee I could protect a ninth or a tenth. This proved such a circumstance. At twilight that same evening, I left my lodging to stand under the moonlight outside the home of that eighth child. I did not tell anyone this. When the bailiff had asked where I would be searching that evening, I told him that I would try the woods again. This seemed to please the man. Checking one last time that there was nobody to see what I was doing, I pulled the thing from my satchel. A small glass bottle, dipped in wax to prevent any light from getting in, and caged with iron to keep it from breaking. Holding my breath, I undid the metal latch at the bottle's mouth, uncorked it, and emptied its contents onto the ground. It had the appearance of a luminous blue smoke, but it poured from the bottle with the consistency of thick syrup, and when it touched the earth it did not spread, but clumped together until there was nothing left to pour from the vessel, whereafter it began to coalesce. I'll admit that I did not know what to expect. The bottle had been passed on to me by an older hunter years ago, and all they'd told me was that the creature inside would be drawn to the scent of fresh despair 
that of the living, and more strongly to that of those recently past. It was small. I shouldn't have been so surprised, given the size of the bottle, but I had also not expected it to conform so neatly to such laws of space. A tiny, almost human-like thing, with limbs too scrawny for its torso, and a head too big. A head that was almost all mouth, save for a hoggish snout. Still glowing dimly with a pale blue light. Stretching itself, and breathing in deeply of fresh air for the first time in who knows how long, it set to its task with little pomp and much vigor. It made short, aggressive snorts and chomped at the air with a ferocious hunger, beginning to crawl westward. I followed. We traveled slowly, though quick as the creature's legs could manage, and we did not go into the woods, or to the river at the village's edge. No. We passed open farmland and tall grass for some time, until it became quite clear that our destination was a house. A somewhat large house, not very far from many of the others in the village. We made our way to the back of it, to the entrance of some kind of cellar. The thing sniffed at this cellar door, then let out an excited yelp. And before I had a moment to assess the situation, the creature dissolved back into thick mist and made its way in between the wooden boards and cracked stone. <laughs> Having no reason to doubt it, I broke through the door, secured with a heavy padlock but made of old, rotted wood. I doubted I had much time to act. If whatever I sought was down there, it would soon be alerted by the small blue thing. With my sword in one hand and a lantern in my other, I slowly descended down the stairs. My mind raced and my heart pounded, though I tried to steady them. What was it? Lycanthrope? Doppelganger. I had to be prepared for anything. The glint of an axe. I saw it a half second too late from the shadows to my right, and it came down hard on my sword arm. The blow was clumsy, but it accomplished its purpose. I felt bones break beneath my mail in the hot rush of blood. My sword fell, and I swung wildly with the lantern as I grimaced through the pain. My swing found something. The lantern broke, hot oil and flames splashed out, and an ugly scream filled the cellar. I could see him now, as fire took the loose straw in the wood of the cellar floor. The bailiff, nursing the now burnt ruin of the right side of his face and neck. I took hold of the sword with my left, and drove it through his gut as he whimpered pathetically. And he did not burst into flame, or melt into a writhing true form. 
He burnt like a man. And I had only a moment. The flames were spreading quickly. A moment to see what this man had been doing. A moment to see that little blue thing bloated, rolled on its back, kicking the air, cooing with satisfaction, having feasted on its favorite meal while it had been out of my sight. I couldn't even stay to watch it all burn. I tire of this. I tire of writing this with my left hand. I tire of all of this. This will be my final entry in this journal, and writing it shall be my final act as a hunter. The time has come for me to retire, and, perhaps, years from now when I reflect on the whole of my life, I will look at it again. I still find it hard to believe that it was only a few days ago when I ventured into the Keller Valley to seek out the siren who calls it home. She had been a bane on these lands for many years, and many a fool seeking to make their fame had descended into the valley to try and take her head. I was only the latest such fool. Oh, not for fame. No. There is one other reason one chooses to travel to that cursed place. It's an old hunter's tradition, you see. When one of us has come to their time, is no longer much use. They make their run at the siren to try and do some last good, or to at least die on your feet while attempting a final, noble act. And me, an old one-armed cripple, it seemed like my time. There's not much one can do to prepare themselves for combat with a siren. Theirs is an assault upon the mind and soul, Armor is no use, nor are any sophisticated tricks. One simply brings good steel, what will they can muster, and a charm to ward off their seductions. Some offer prayer to their gods, if they need that comfort. She must have known I was coming hours before I made my way to her lair. As I made my way down the sloping hills, through the trees and along the stream that fed from the mountains, I could sense the unmistakable touch of magic on these lands. It's not something you can see or hear. It's almost a... taste. This was her place. Her trees. Her water. I cannot say whether it was the trinket around my neck that kept me safe or if the mistress of the valley was simply curious to meet her visitor. Though, as I passed another ruined and ancient shrine to Estrilla, so similar to the one I had seen months before, my guess leaned towards the latter. She was waiting for me at the lowest point of the vale, where the water collected into a small, shallow lake. This water was so pristine that when I looked down into it I could see the bones of dozens of hunters long dead, as though I were looking through glass, their flesh gone, and their tools and trinkets still glittering. 
And as for her, well, she was even more beautiful than the story said, floating out in the middle of the lake, seeming to both be standing on the water and a part of it at the same time, draped in a gown as crystal clear as that pool that gently dripped and dripped. There were no words exchanged between us. I don't even know if she spoke a human tongue. She simply tilted her head, offered me a bemused smile, and began to glide across the water toward me. And as I waded into the water to meet her, my body froze. I looked down and saw that water had begun to twist and crawl up my body. It formed into winding tendrils that made their way up my torso and took hold of my neck and arm. <laughs> A careless mistake. Though, maybe it was no mistake at all. Perhaps, on some level, I knew this was futile. Not noble sacrifice, but rather doom-seeking. A quick way to wash away my failures of late. She was before me now, and, still standing on the water's surface, leaned close, staring deep into my eyes and then moving her lips to my ears. She did not speak, but I could still hear her in my mind. Everything was becoming blurry and warm. I felt tired in the best possible way. I closed my eyes and let darkness begin to overtake me. I was prepared for my final sleep. But then, as the light was going out, something ignited within me. Was this truly it? Had all my struggles, my accomplishments, the lessons I'd learned and taught truly led me to this Meaningless end. Hunter. Hero. Call me what you will. I know what lies within me. What it takes to overcome evil in the world. And I knew how my story was to end. And so, I became suddenly filled with a resolve not to die. Not in this place and at her hands. A fiery will overcame me, and my eyes shot open. The siren hissed and recoiled, her concentration breaking, and her grip on me with those watery tendrils loosening for just a moment. Just enough time to muster my strength and plunge my blade into her vile heart. She faded into the lake with a soundless scream and the water around my neck and arm lost its form and gently fell down my body. It was quiet, save for that gentle drip of water. I had done it. I had slain the siren of Keller Valley, and now returned as a legend. They sang my song from Hannistown to Hagenbach, and they shall sing it for years to come. 
there was a feast and drunken revelry. Begor was there, and Emol. And now I shall retire in well-earned peace, and live out the rest of my years without want or care. A quiet life, a warm life, soothed to sleep each night by the gentle sound of dripping water. I can hear it now. This, this is the life I always wanted. This week's episode, Notes from a Hunter, was written and performed by Anthony Botello. The Wrong Station is made possible with the generous support of our listeners on Patreon. Thank you to David Parker, Gary, John Nemesek, and Will Roberts for helping us keep the lights, well, off. You can also support us by leaving a rating and review on iTunes, or wherever it is you listen to The Wrong Station. The Wrong Station is co-produced by Alexander Saxton, Anthony Botello, and Jacob Duarte Spiel, with music composed and performed on the piano by Elan Citrin, and arranged for the viola and performed by Viola Schmidt. You can follow The Wrong Station on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, and email us at therongstation at gmail.com. And until next time, thank you for listening.